This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal. This is Global Reboot. Welcome to the show. We often say that artificial intelligence is growing at an exponential rate. And that's because developments in high-end semiconductors have just been so immense. And the models that are deploying those chips keep surprising us with their increasingly impressive performances. Well, as it happens, in recent weeks, news about regulating AI has also been coming at a rapid clip. It's not exponential for sure, but it's a lot. Just last week, the Biden administration announced a 63-page executive order on AI seeking to realize the promise of AI, but to avoid the risks. Around the same time, the UK organized an AI summit at Bletchley Park, the base for World War II codebreakers. And it was attended by Vice President Kamala Harris, the European Commission's Ursula von der Leyen, and several other world leaders. 28 governments, including China, signed the so-called Bletchley Declaration, agreeing that artificial intelligence poses a potentially catastrophic risk to humanity. Suddenly, it just seems like there's real global energy around regulating AI. And the challenge here, of course, is to minimize the downsides while still allowing for innovation. Well, a short while before the Biden announcement I mentioned, I spoke with someone who's been at the forefront of Europe's moves to regulate AI. And of course, Brussels has been way ahead of the curve on all things tech regulation for quite a while. One of the driving forces there is a young Bulgarian politician named Eva Maidel. She's an influential member of the European Parliament in Brussels and often leads European tech regulation discussions. I spoke with Maidel about how to reboot AI regulation or in this case, how to think about it in a way that is dynamic, but also future-proof. Global Reboot is a partnership between foreign policy and the Doha Forum. This is episode four of season three. Let's dive in. Ava Maydell, welcome to Global Reboot. Very happy to be joining you. So I thought we should begin with this. When we think about artificial intelligence in policy circles, we often begin with regulation, and we'll go there in a bit. But I thought I'd begin on a much more optimistic note, maybe. What are the opportunities that most excite you about the development of AI? I don't know if you know, but I actually started my work in the European Parliament about 10 years ago, focusing on tech issues. So in a way, I consider myself a tech optimist. But today, I also consider myself a tech realist as well. Technology has driven processes much faster, and it has delivered services or products that we've never imagined before. So this has deeply contributed to the way our economies work and operate. 
And this is why I think it's important to take a look at uh, what are the promises out there. So what excites me is the ability to learn has changed already, and it's going to change again at an unprecedented pace. The ability to gain knowledge simply because we'll have more time to focus on getting better, excelling as individuals, and being able to put those ideas, creative ideas that humans have into the real world. Mm. I began very deliberately with the question I did because I think there's a danger in sometimes thinking of regulation as strangling innovation when in fact it can have the opposite effect. Um, It can provide uh, safeguards and a harness as people develop technology for the best case scenarios. But more specifically, I think what you've been describing is how tech can be a force for good, and it can. But what about AI more specifically? How has AI changed the ability of tech to do things that would shape the way we live? Well, I think it has already started doing that quite some time ago without us really realizing. We've just come to a different dimension on the way AI operates. And this is why what I mentioned earlier, it would just perhaps give us the ability to project, to vision, to think more because some more generic things that a human would do could be done by an AI. So we could actually develop that part of the human brain and time that would be truly beneficial for society. I'm curious about, you know, obviously you're uh, in Europe, but which parts of the world do you think could most benefit from AI? And I have to say one of the things that worries me is that This is such high-end stuff, especially when you think about large language learning models um, and chips, especially the highest-end chips, that one worries it's only going to get applied in the biggest, richest countries. It's a technology that you could use in a way much easier than many other technologies. So everyone can have access to the technology, but the question is, who would be most tech savvy. And this is why I think when it comes to competitiveness, economic development, perhaps the biggest war we are going to be fighting on is the war on talent. Without the prepared professionals, it would be very difficult to develop as a nation state capabilities that would enable you to use those technologies. And so that would be key. And that can determine those that succeed and those that don't. Mm. So I began with the opportunities that lie within AI and technology. What about the threats? There have been so many warnings from influential scientists in the last year who make the point that AI poses a threat to human existence. As a policymaker, how do you gauge the threat level? Well, I certainly have heard and listened to all these calls. And I think it's good to address all sorts of ramifications of AI. If one looks at military applications of AI, for example. Some experts would say um, that the Russian war against Ukraine is actually 
an AI war. And then winning this war all of a sudden could become not about the people and how many people you have to win it, but it's a matter of data and how you utilize that data. And here the question is, who is using AI and who is using this data and for what purposes? Countries that lead in AI research and development will also lead in innovation and technology. But they will also be the ones supposedly setting the global standards for the use of AI. Whether that would be mainly used for precision of military drones, whether that's going to be uh, used to create an unprecedented wave of disinformation or deepfakes, whether that would be AI that will become an extremely powerful tool to demolish democracies. And this is a major task that has to be resolved, and it would be resolved differently depending on who takes the lead and depending on who wants to set guardrails. So I think in order to be able to set those standards that are according to our democratic values, it has to be the leadership of democratic nations like the US, the EU, the UK, and others together finding ways of how to put those guardrails in the most impactful and meaningful way possible. You know, a lot of what you're describing also strikes me as older technological problems. I mean, as you said, AI isn't particularly new. It's just that it's entered the public consciousness in a major way in the last couple of years, some of that because of the proliferation of chat GPT. But before we come to regulating AI, I'm curious whether all of the problems you're describing with AI as a threat to humanity, whether some of that is because the world failed to properly regulate technology, not AI, but older versions of technology. I think we are at the point of time where powerful private actors need to understand that being part of the societal system of regulation, it's not an easy task. The people, the democratically elected people who would be invested in working on foreign affairs, in geopolitics, they would need to understand better how those private actors operate, how they think, how they work, how we can cooperate together. But in the same time, more importantly, Private actors need to understand how policy works. What are those societal responsibilities that policymakers and government officials have? So let's take an example. Uh, in business, one could say some of the toughest things you need to do. Of course, there's many probably business decisions, but striking a deal with another company is perhaps something that's always tricky. If you are negotiating on how to make sure there is a ceasefire in a conflict, there's a number of things you need to keep in mind, whether there is identity issues, historical issues, religious, ethnical, and so on and so forth. These are the sort of things that cannot be decided with a tweet. It is so much more difficult to negotiate a temporary ceasefire between two sides than 
perhaps striking that business deal. But this does not mean that the two don't need to understand better each other's jobs and don't need to collaborate. It's about finding the right path together of what's possible, what are the limits that governments sometimes have, how do we reimagine the way we've been regulating until now. You strike me as so self-aware about the possibilities and the limits of government here, but I think this is a good moment then to come to the EU's uh, AI Act, which is the world's first comprehensive AI legislative proposal. I should note to our listeners that at the time of this taping in late October, deliberations are still under the, underway in Brussels um, for the act to be passed and enacted fully. But I ask you, why was this law necessary and what in it makes AI safer? So to provide a little bit of context, the AI Act was released in 2021. That was way before uh, all of the chat GPT hype. And it's the first ever general law on AI. And this means it's horizontal in meaning and it covers all sectors. It utilizes a pyramid approach that ranges from prohibited practices to low-risk practices, which do not need to be regulated. Of particular interests, usually to everyone, are the high-risk categories. So there we regulate risky use cases like biometric facial recognition, issues related to migration, credit assessment, employment, education. We have introduced measures to know if why a person is uh, denied a loan or a public benefit as a result of an AI decision. And we think this is important to social trust. For me, what's important from this act, uh, having in mind where we find ourselves today, is to make sure we emphasize more on innovative solutions that can support our companies that we emphasize on international collaboration. It has to be an act that sets uh, perhaps more global understanding of how we want to go about on AI, and also to raise the awareness that should Europe want to be part of that race, we would probably need a separate vehicle, a separate vision next to this AI act that can enable companies to innovate. The law will not necessarily make you a leader just because you make a law with which you put guardrails. They're important for the safety, for the way AI will be developed, but they would not necessarily create the next AI champion. So for that, we'll need a separate thoughtful process to be put ahead. You know, one question I have is just how fast AI seems to be developing. I mean, new chips are being manufactured uh, from NVIDIA, for example, that provide this sort of exponential boost to what AI can do. And that then filters through into LLMs and other aspects of AI that have so much more power in their applications. And I guess what I'm wondering then is how does lawmaking keep up? So first of all, if we go back and look at the way laws have been developed, to a certain extent, we've always been delayed with proposing regulation. 
But on the other hand, for us would be important not to play whack-a-mole, so to say, and to try to regulate the next big thing. So a lot of colleagues, uh, when we first heard of the chat GPT and other novel applications, people said, well, now we need to regulate chat GPT. And I think we need to aim for an underlying set of principles and mechanisms, and this is what we are trying to do in the AI Act, that are effective for at least the next few years. Perhaps the last component is part of this international collaboration. Um, I would much rather be seeing us booking a table for 20 rather than 10 tables for two when we talk about AI development and how to go about it. And so greater stakeholder involvement here, meaningful stakeholder involvement will be key. And that closer dialogue with other players to eliminate the silos discussions that are happening right now. You know, from what you're describing about global cooperation, I'm curious about Brussels's role here, because... You know this. I mean, the EU and Brussels has a reputation for being a first mover on regulating technology. And in the last decade or so, that's been an immense force for good and for moral clarity around the world. But there's as much as being a first mover has an advantage, there are also disadvantages to being a first mover in that you're kind of making it up on your own without other models to learn from. And sometimes you have other countries or regions that jump in later and move ahead of you. So China, for example, began to think about regulating after the EU did, but it was able to more quickly move ahead with some measures. So how do you think about your role and Brussels's role in leading the global conversation on regulating technology? As I said earlier, the AI Act is the world's first and in a way also most comprehensive piece of legislation for setting those ethical democratic standards uh, for AI. So in a way, it's a landmark piece of legislation and naturally one has to be proud of that. But what would make me truly proud is what's going to be the end product. So I'm not one of those people that would sacrifice speed over quality. For me, it would be much more important that we've got them right. On one hand, to ensure to citizens that AI is developed according to their expectation, their democratic expectations. But on the other hand, making sure AI can still operate on European borders. At the same time, I think there is a multitude of global initiative, and I personally don't see us competing with them. I see our efforts as complementing uh, one another. And this is why it's even more important to have a common place uh, where we could discuss and debate and issue those recommendations among other experts. The way I see it is that this is a competition between the world's democracies and autocracies to set the standards that will guide the future development of AI. Do you think regulators and politicians more broadly have the right ability and are they equipped in the right way to regulate technology? And I ask this because you're surprisingly young for the work you do at the level that you do it. 
But here in the United States, legislators are twice as old. We often use the word gerontocracy for the leadership that we have in the United States. And one often wonders that, you know, are some leaders unable to grasp concepts like AI or quantum computing? And therefore, how do they think about regulating it? Over the past 10 years, I've learned a lot from some of my colleagues that are in the European Parliament for maybe more than 20 years. But I can see that sometimes it's not about experience, but it's more about vision and understanding trends and being able to strategize and understand how time is shifting, is changing, and also to have some sort of a foresight to understand what are those global trends that will be profoundly redefining our societies in a couple of years from now, and probably they're already redefining them today. Uh, when the conversation in the European institutions a few years back was about how do we have a European Facebook or a European Google, I was always on the very cautious side saying that's the wrong discussion to have. A, we are not going to be able to replicate that. And B, we should be focusing where our strengths are and what do we want to do with our strengths? Where do we think we can succeed? And sometimes it's not even up to the policymakers to pick those winners. It's about providing the playing field so that players could be players. And so I think there has to be a collaboration between those that are experienced policymakers, and we need to listen to one another and to those that perhaps have a vision, have an understanding of where global trends um, and tech trends here in particularly are moving and how they're influencing uh, our societies. And here it's truly about, uh, you know, being able to grasp that change and seeing where your nation, your country or the European Union in this case can have that competitive advantage, not just to be the first in regulating, but more importantly, enabling its players on the ground to be successful. You know, uh, I edit Foreign Policy magazine and a lot of times when it comes to conflict or war, or relations between countries, we often like to imagine an ideal end state because it helps to work towards that in policymaking today. And so let me ask you about your ideal end state, say 10 years from now, what do you think is the best way for government and private sector and technology to intermingle and the role of regulation within them. What is your ideal end state? I think the biggest challenge for governments today is how to have foresight and to plan ahead while you constantly find yourself surrounded by multiple crises, be it COVID, be it the war in Ukraine, inflation, issues that are important for your society that you need to tackle today, if ideally you should have tackled yesterday, but in the same time preparing your government, your institutions, preparing your societies to be resilient for the years to come. And this is why I think 
it would be important for governments to create their resilience teams that are not just making sure that you're cyber protected, but that you're able to predict trends, to predict threats, to also see where the opportunities will lie. And sometimes, by the way, those teams will probably get some things wrong, but some things they will get right. And it's up to the leadership to listen to them. And probably that's even more challenging than making sure you make the right predictions, because it's very difficult to grasp the attention of a leader who has to tackle a problem in their society today for them to think about three years from now down the line or two years ahead. We're not even talking 10 years. So I think the next 10 years will be how to make sure that governments can retain that societal trust. But this does not mean we should not be preparing for the future. Eva Maidel, thank you for joining Global Reboot. Thank you so much for having me. And that was Eva Maidel, a Bulgarian politician and member of the European Parliament. Global Reboot is a partnership between foreign policy and the Doha Forum. Our production staff includes Rosie Julin and Dan Efron. Next week, how to fix the world's refugee crisis. Kelly Clements is the Deputy High Commissioner for Refugees at the UN. I will ask her what it would take to make sure the world can do right by the people who are forced out of their homes. Thanks for listening to Global Reboot. I'm Ravi Agrawal. I will see you next time.